I don't see any football jerseys for either of the two teams who are playing. So I assume that means we all agree we want both teams to lose and Rihanna to win, right? Is that, is that, I, I'm feeling that in the air. And so uh, we're just going to, you know, wish that into existence. If you came today and you're part of the family and you intend to give back financially, uh, just a reminder, you can do that real easily through a text to give. Uh, I don't know um, how we even did it before. I, I guess there's a checkbook somewhere around our house that Jen knows where it's at, but you can text that in 84321, any amount to there, and it, and it will uh, go uh, to expand the work of the kingdom through disciples. Uh, a whole bunch of other stuff going on around here this week. I'm sure Pastor Dan will mention some of that at the close of service, uh, but don't miss an opportunity to give back and sow in as a family to those things. There, there is a bucket in back too for those who want to have that um, experience of active worship to dump it in the bucket. I know a number of you do that still each week, so God bless you uh, for that. Uh, we have all felt the overwhelming, heavy burden of a toxic relationship. So that name just came to mind for a lot of people. Um, don't bring that name back to my mind. Uh, Sunday morning, Stu. Uh, we've all felt uh, the pain of a conversation that we wish we could undo or at the very least redo. We have all felt the weight of a secret kept that we wish we didn't have to. Uh, for Adam and Eve, they were no stranger to these feelings of overwhelming burden or searing loss or stinging pain either. They felt all of it. After all, uh, they were given to their deep desire to shortcut God's way for their life. And I want to play around today in this territory that all really guides back to the shortcuts you and I have used to connect with God and to live out his way. Uh, the way our culture is set up is a, a culture of shortcuts. And I, I don't even necessarily mean shortcuts in some sort of evil, uh, deceitful manner. I mean shortcuts in, you know, how many of you work on a keyboard all day long at work and you know a couple you know, control something or other. Um, I'm looking over here at Greg for the Mac ones. I don't know any of them. Um, I barely know how to right-click on my touchpad, which I just learned how to do recently on my MacBook. Uh, but we're, we're a people who know shortcuts. We understand how to shortcut stuff. And it's not new to our culture. This strange new world we're living in, full of all kinds of shortcuts, is not new to a shortcut. After all, God, at the very dawn of creation, creates Humanity, man and woman, in his image. And the very next line of the text, which I will remind us of till my dying day, made in his image to be like him. You were not made in God's image so you could be reminded how bad and evil you are all the time. You were made in his image to be like him. And after he made you and me and us in his image, he looked at it and he said, not just it is good, but it is very good. Let us always begin there when we have discussions about God. And I know that may feel elementary or remedial, but we'll even get to it here in Galatians 4 today. That this elementary concept, while in the Galatians connotation, 
uh, Paul will beat up on a bit. What I mean by elementary is I mean just coming back to the root of who God is. If the God of the Bible is actually real, and if he's still at work in the world, and I believe as confidently as I ever have that those two things are true, that we come back to who he is at his core and how it is he creates in his image to be like him. So why wouldn't Adam and Eve eat some fruit? You know, I mean, a serpent comes to them and says, listen, if you eat this fruit, your eyes will be open. And, and do you recall the next line? It's not like a quiz. I'm not trying to beat you up. But the very next line is, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. And, and it's like this shorthand trigger word that they're like, wait a minute, that's what we're programmed for. Wait, that's what God said. He just said it right back there. I don't know how he said it to them and how they heard it and all, all that. I, I, I don't know. But it's the same words that God spoke over creation. The serpent now speaks over creation himself. I mean, isn't that the point of life anyway, to be like God? So they eat the fruit. You know the story. Sin enters the picture. Innocence is lost. And through all kinds of means, it tries to try to find some sort of way to make life work now in the midst of this brokenness. The prophets can't seem to turn it around, and boy, did they try. Man, they were just exhausting themselves trying to get us to see our wayward ways. The law couldn't get us back on track, though it attempts to. The kings and the judges couldn't seem to chart a path back to God. Heck, I mean, even Moses tells his people, I'm going up the mountain, don't move. There's a pillar, a fire by night, and a cloud by day for you to follow and be with God's presence. Don't leave his presence. About 15 minutes later, they're <laughs> melting down grandma's wedding ring to make a new God. And it's like laughable to us now, but we've been melting down our grandma's jewelry to make new gods for ourselves ever since. And so we adapt ourselves to the way our parents walked this out and their parents and their ancestors 14 generations before that. And we're reminded in moments like these that secrets can kill us. That destructive choices, that conversations we wish we could redo, undo, toxic relationships, all these things have a way of distancing us from the person and the presence of God himself. And this is the very ground Paul begins to kind of till up the soil of in Galatians chapter 4. Look at it with me now, if you would. Galatians 4 verse 1. Think of it this way, Paul writes. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son born of a woman subject to the law. See how that kind of cascades down? That's valuable and important, and especially for those of you who are linear thinkers. This is like Paul's gift to you. 
um, this very linear cascading of a thought. Verse 5, God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, this is still moving in a linear fashion, friends, so catch that. Because we are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts to prompt us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but you are God's own child. And since you are a child, God has made you an heir. Pray with me, if you would, as we dig into this over the remaining moments. Father, Son, and Spirit, we surrender our lives to you as we've prayed once before all together. As we break this little alabaster jar that is our own ways of thinking and our own personal agency about how we see you, we spill that perfume out all over the floor and we say to you, God, do what you want with this. Do what you want with us. Shape us and mold us. Transform us into your image so we walk out of here not just a people who participated in a gathering, but a people who entered into your transformational process. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Paul opens uh, the chapter with this really powerful parallel to a father leaving an inheritance. And, and this idea that, you know, even a child who inherits something is sort of beholden to dad uh, until dad passes. Uh, now, I, I don't want any of us to end up on any Criminal Minds podcast, so don't get any ideas in your head. Uh, but the concept here remains the same, that, that until dad passes on, that inheritance is, is kind of held in escrow, if you will. And in some cases, it's even withering away a bit. And we are slaves to it in some sense. He calls out spiritual principles of this world towards the end of verse 3, which I think is a, a key phrase. And he references that same phrase again in verse 9, which we uh, will unlikely get to this morning, though I, I wish there were time to get to it. I think there's other places God will have us anchor in this morning. But in verse 9, he does say, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless? Again, this word spiritual principles of this world. I thought it, would, it was an interesting phrase, spiritual principles of this world. And I uh, thought it would be helpful to dig in at least briefly to this. The uh, English Standard Version uh, calls these elementary principles. I don't know if that helps sort of unveil that for you. Uh, for those of you who, like me, are big fans of Eugene Peterson, uh, I, I just love the way uh, Eugene Peterson puts this, and he and I are going to be such good friends in heaven. I'm telling you guys, um, it's going to be awesome. Um, we're going to be good, good friends. He's going to introduce me to Jesus. He's going to know Jesus in ways I never have. Uh, anyway, uh, Gene Peterson puts it this way in the message. Uh, he calls these elementary principles or these spiritual principles of this world. He calls them tin gods and paper tigers. Isn't that a great concept in our head? A tin god or a paper tiger. You ever been afraid of a paper tiger? Hanging on the refrigerator when your kids make it in class? A tin god? Does a tin god, could it possibly have any authority in your life? I doubt it. 
Verses four and five continue to kind of unfold this picture. He says, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. God's redemption, it is important to note and remind ourselves of. God's redemption arrives in flesh and blood and it purchases our freedom through adoption. God's redemption arrives in flesh and blood. So Christ doesn't arrive with a new system. Christ doesn't arrive as a new prophet, though often they called him a prophet. Christ doesn't arrive as as simply a new unfolding layer to this Old Testament law. He fulfills the law. He outshines the prophets. He establishes a new kingdom. He does everything the earthly powers and authorities had hoped to be a sliver of. And he does it all in completion. But we read on because in the discussion of freedom, I think it can be really easy for us and a great temptation for us to view freedom through the same lens theologically that we view freedom as Americans. Now, I'm not gonna do some sort of ax grinding on American freedom, so just relax, okay? Get, close your email thing and don't send me a snotty one. Uh, I, I wanna say just this about American freedom, that American freedom in all of its grandeur and its goodness and sometimes it's not so goodness is not what Paul's talking about when he talks about freedom. It's important that we not bring a 21st century understanding of a word to a first century text that means that word in a very, very different way. I don't want to do a big thing on this because I I think there's other things Christ wants to do in the text with us today. But let me at least say this much, and this will be wildly incomplete and somewhat uninformed. And so I just caveat after caveat after caveat. Okay, good. Am I safe? Am I covered? Um, American freedom at least says to us, as long as you're not hurting anybody else, like in a really clear way, do whatever you want. I mean, in some sense. And I know I'm distilling it down and making it really simple. Christian freedom is not that. It's just not that. Christian freedom is a communal way in which we live, uh, aligned around the personal presence of Jesus. And Christian freedom calls us, invites us into a way of life that isn't about do what I want as long as it doesn't hurt you. It's do whatever will help you even if it hurts me. (laughs) It's, It's a complete turning it on its head. So we ought not, and, and listen, I get I'm being overly simplistic about some of this, but, but just for the sake of carrying on through the, through the rest of this text, remember the freedom we think of when we think America is like the opposite in some sense of what Paul's talking about in this freedom. And it doesn't mean American freedom's bad. I'm re- I, I get to travel all over the world on a regular basis. And I'm always real happy when they scan my U.S. passport and welcome me back, okay? So don't don't hear any of that as some sort of a swipe on the beautiful country in which we live. But as we read on, it's important that we recognize the difference. Verse six carries on, okay? We're gonna keep on some of this because I wanna go where God, I think, is leading us. 
And because we are his children, Paul writes, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are a child, God has made you an heir. See, even if we don't make the mistake of, of thinking of Christian freedom in the same light as American freedom, which I, I think we've got a handle on that, and we'll, we'll separate those. There's another error we might be prone to make when we think about freedom, and that's simply to think that Christian freedom is the end goal of the Christian life. And it's just not. It's not even in the text. There's something even better. So when we think back to the, the searing loss of a conversation gone sideways that costs a relationship, when we think about the overwhelming burden of a secret you carry that you feel you can't share, when you, when you think about whatever toxic relationship or difficult bind you've gotten yourself in, and then you think about the joy of being free from that, of being able to undo it or redo it or, or being able to go back in time and make it unthing itself. Even that is not even a glimmer of the beauty and the wonder of walking with Jesus. It doesn't even hold a candle to it. So we ought not think about this as, oh, it would be, being with Jesus would be, would be like having my life without my mistakes. And Paul says, no, no, no. It's even better than that, guys. It's even better than that. See, the temptation here is thinking that freedom, again, is the end goal, but it's just not. The end goal is the presence of Christ, the, the candle that gets lit behind us. Maybe we ought to do it every week, but at least on communion Sundays, we light this candle, which the ancient desert mothers and fathers would light to signify Christ is here. And it's the presence of Jesus in our midst that is the end goal of the Christian life. It's the sitting down over coffee with somebody and you just feel the presence of God with you. That's a different coffee date. It's a conversation with a loved one, a spouse, a child, a parent, where you know it could go sideways and somehow miraculously it doesn't. And you tell somebody later, oh my goodness, I can't believe it went so well. And a friend said, well, I was, I was praying for you. Oh, I wonder if that could be it. <laughs> you think? Galatians 4, 6 says, and because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us out to call Abba, Father. What it doesn't say is because of Christ's great mercy, he has forgiven you because you've been so bad and now at least you're forgiven. No, you are that, of course you're forgiven. That's like not even part of the discussion. It's like, that's so far in the rear view mirror that now we're in this idea and this concept of you get to actually be with Jesus. His spirit lives in you. So when Adam and Eve went sideways and shortcutted the process of becoming like God, thinking mistakenly that the goal was to become like God, so I can just become like God by eating this fruit. 
God says, no, you became like me by being with me. Which is why God says to them in Genesis 3, 9, when they eat the apple and they go hide, which is always our first step after innocence is lost, God says, not, what have you done? He says, where are you? Where, where have you gone? As if the end goal was, I just want to be with you. I just want to hang out with you. I, I want to be your father. I, I want to be with you. And it's also not like he didn't know where they were. <laughs> it's a rhetorical question to them to say, listen, don't forget the one thing here, guys. The one thing is be with me. And so a sacrificial system is set up immediately so they can be cleansed of unrighteousness in that moment so they can be with God again. They were made to be with God because it is only with God's withness that we become a witness to all that he is doing. You see, like we, we even think about the Old Testament story of this great woman, Ruth who demonstrates so much of who God is. And we often look at the story, and, and not wrongly so, but we look at the story as this beautiful story of God's kinsman redeemer. God sees her and has mercy on this difficult life that Ruth has lived and extends to Ruth the joy of a second chance at marriage and communion and life and marriage. And it's a beautiful side to the story, one that I think has meant a lot to many of us, but at least as much as that story is the power of Ruth's comment to her mother-in-law. When her mother-in-law says, go back to your country, go back to your people, start a new life. And she says to her mother-in-law, don't ask me to leave you. Don't ask me to turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die is where I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if anything but death separates us. And in the midst of that, I'm convinced that God hears this word of Ruth that he obviously has put in her if he, again, is God and at work in the world. And he puts this in Ruth and it's almost as if Ruth has turned the economy of the world upside down and said to her mother-in-law, no, we're going to deal in God's economy. And in God's economy, withness is everything. I'm going to be with you and nothing can separate. And to that, God says, oh, that I'm just going to unleash the gift of heaven on you. Kinsmen and redeemers coming your way. Great food's coming your way. Grace is coming your way. Goodness is coming your way. Not because he's reciprocating her good behavior, but because she has said, I will only work in your economy. We are heirs to God's entire fortune and his presence is the inheritance. Forgiveness is the means. Forgiveness is huge. Praise God for forgiveness. But don't get stuck at forgiveness. Or all you will ever think about is the old you, the broken you, the sinful you. Get stuck in inheritance. I have been made to be with the Almighty. And he says to me, I can go boldly to the throne of grace, knowing I will be met with mercy and love. This is what God has made us for, to be with him as heirs. And this inheritance has no better expression than at the table. 
And Jesus has flagged this a number of times in his ministry prior to the table. He, he meets with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. If you're new to the life of faith or new to the teachings of Jesus, and you're like, listen, get, I, I ain't got time to read all the whole book. Give me, you know, give me two minutes. Read John 4. Just read John 4. And just hang out in John 4, like, you know, I don't know, six months. Just read John 4 every day for six months. Jesus meets with this woman and they're having a theological argument about where can we worship and what's the system for worship and how do we worship? And, and, and Jesus says to him, listen, all, all that matters, <laughs> you're with me now. You're, you're with the Almighty right now. You're in my presence. And she turns her whole city upside down. Jesus is in a big crowd and a, a woman touches his cloak and a whole commotion happens and she gets healed. And meanwhile, the young girl, he was headed off to go heal, has died in the meantime of all the scuffle. And Jesus says, don't worry, just let me be with her. And he rushes to her aid as she's already died and raises her from the dead. Jesus is always saying, I want to be with you. And then we arrive at Matthew 26. And Jesus knows the time of his arrest is about to arrive. Uh, he's already really been betrayed in some sense. Judas has already gone and made the deal for money to betray him. But the final act of the kiss hasn't happened yet. And Jesus gathers his closest friends in this borrowed upper room to celebrate one last Passover supper before he is to be arrested tried in the fakest trial ever. In fact, three trials, all of them were garbage. Found guilty, beaten within an inch of his life, then forced to carry his own cross up a hill and murdered in public in the most humiliating of all ways imaginable in that time and space. And knowing all of this is coming, Jesus pauses at that dinner table that night and he stands and he grabs a loaf of bread and he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. And, and it would not have been lost on these young men in the room that this was the new bread of presence. The Old Testament talks about bread of presence in the Ark of the Covenant. And now Jesus stands up with a new bread of presence and says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he grabs a cup of wine. He said, this represents the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. So I invite you uh, now in these closing moments before we end our time. And uh, thankfully, uh, kids have joined us. Kids, uh, would you lead the way today and, and just show us how it's done? I think that'd be uh, really fun and beautiful. If you're confident enough to do it, go for it. I'm gonna move this table out of the way and I would just invite everybody, if you can get up and move, come and get your elements and uh, you can kind of slowly head back to your seat if you'd like. Don't take the elements, we'll do it all together, but get both elements uh, if there's somebody nearby you who is trapped in a center or doesn't look like they can move easily, would you please grab elements for them? Let's care for one another. And uh, we'll take the elements all together. So uh, come with me now and let's take the elements.
It's like the inner monologue in my head. Don't make a joke, Stu. Don't make a joke. Don't make a joke. It's not time for a joke. But there's just so many, God. Jesus starts with the bread. And he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. And even in the physical act of consuming the bread, we're reminded that Jesus is with us. And after we're reminded that he is with us, he reminds us we are forgiven. Wash sins away through the blood of Christ. Take and drink the new covenant in his blood. Friends, you are no longer slaves. Jesus doesn't see you as that. You are an heir, and your inheritance is his presence in your life, his voice whispering, his goodness over you. May he unravel you with his good presence. Stand with me and let's sing as we close.